This is In Conversation from Network Reorient in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. We aim to explore the post-Western, reconnect the Islamosphere. In this episode, I speak with Tariq Yunus and Claudia Radovan on disciplining Muslimness and prevent. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to another episode of In Conversation. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about disciplining, uh, prevent, and uh, psychologization. You're going to have to help me with that one, Tarek, once we get to talking about it, because I can't pronounce that for the life of me. Um, so I have uh, with me first, as I've already mentioned, Dr. Tarek Yunus, uh, who's a lecturer at the University of Middlesex, and uh, Claudia Radovan, who is a teaching fellow at the University of Leeds. And we shall be discussing these issues together. Hopefully, and I feel that these issues have uh, come back into the spotlight. Not that Prevent is never in the spotlight, but they've come back because of a series of events um, that have occurred. So some of which we may touch upon, but I think the main thrust of this will be disciplining and uh, that word that Barak uses. <laughs> um, so I want to start off our discussion with a bit of an explanation, because we have, obviously, for uh, people in the UK, Prevent is well known, but we have listeners from, obviously, outside of the UK uh, who may not know what Prevent is. So could you please give an explanation of what Prevent is? So um, it's interesting. I, I should mention, um, I think some people in Prevent are often very uh, attentive to how those are, who are critical of Prevent uh, define Prevent. Um, so sort of giving the official definition of prevent, um, for anyone who doesn't know it, prevent is a, is a policy that in the UK whereby public bodies such as, um, sorry, such as hospitals, uh, universities, even nurseries have uh, a duty to identify and report, to have due regard in identifying and reporting individuals they suspect might become terrorists in the future, or in another way to say it, to be vulnerable to radicalization. Um, and so every institution has this responsibility of being able to demonstrate that they're fulfilling this duty and there's actually consequences when institutions are not fulfilling this responsibility. But essentially, it's responsibilizing all staff who are working in public bodies for them to recognize in themselves through training that they should essentially keep their eyes out for people who they think might um, become terrorists in the future and to report them accordingly. Hmm. Okay. Um, so what I want to move on now is to one of the main themes uh, of this podcast episode, and that is of disciplining. And it's often been said in many academic and even non-academic circles that prevent or even uh, CVE, as it's known elsewhere, uh, is a tool of disciplining. Now, what does that mean to you both? What does it mean to say that prevent uh, slash CVE is a tool of disciplining? I think, I think we can look at both sort of very broadly um, in terms of one, how it affects people subject to the remonstrations of prevent and CV methods more broadly, but also how it affects those um, who, are, who now have a legal duty to carry it out. If we, if we look at prevent and the way it sort of engenders a climate of self-regulation, it's almost like the panopticon. People 
people are aware, individuals are aware that they are um, being observed for the statements they say for changes in their behavior and so on. And it's, um, it, it can lead to that kind of self-regulation because people um, are aware of the effect of what they say in the classroom, for example, in the context of education, what they might um, say in a lecture situation, but also the kinds of political activism that they may want to get involved in. And it can affect um, those actions and statements, but um, it, it can also affect those who have to carry out prevent. It's, it's one more burden on already heavily burdened public service uh, employees, particularly in healthcare, education and the like. Um, but as a pre-crime approach, it's sort of it's not working on evidence as such. It's working on so-called intelligence. So um, pe people, there's that kind of fear. Um, it's quite a coercive fear that things that they say might be taken as an assumption of potentially uh, extremist views. So it's quite it's quite dangerous in that sense. Mm. Okay, Derek, do you want to talk on that as well? The disciplining. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. Claudia uh, really hit the nail on the head. I think there's an, there's an interesting sort of intersection between sort of being disciplined and self-disciplining. Um, mm -hmm. And I think sort of Claudia is, 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 is mentioning both. Um, but in a way, you know, if, if we were to, to sort of navigate the two, I think that's the space between the two is really where I'm trying to fit in in terms of my work. Mm. Um, but you, just to say it broadly, we, we see how prevent does hit both, right? There's an element of being disciplined, especially as, as Claudia mentioned, let's say if there's any points of activism, um, especially Palestinian activism or other forms of mm. activism, um, which are very overtly disciplined, right? So there's, mm. a, there's overt processes of being told how to speak and the ramifications of speaking about certain issues incorrectly. Um, but then sort of that self-discipline which comes in whereby, you know, there's that gaze um, that is sort of the, the sort of ideal Muslim or ideal citizenry that is expected from us. Mm. Um, and I, I think I think it's, it's really great to sort of bring those two together at the same time. Mm. And I think this, uh, a lot of what Claudia actually said about, you know, fear and self and what you yourself have said as well, uh, actually tie into one of the concepts which you talk about, and it's that word again, and I'm going to probably butcher it again, the psychologization of the war on terror and of the political. Um, yeah. I just want to ask, what do you mean by this? Um, so psychologization comes from... Um, you know, th there's a sort of history of, of researchers and scholars who've written about how, especially through modernity, um, in modernity, issues, be they social, be they political, whatever it might be, mm. um, have, we, we have a way of medicalizing them. So illness becomes this grand metaphor for, for everything in life. And it belongs within, I think, these a sort of liberal capitalist um, society whereby everything is so, so like hyper-individualized. But in a way, it also speaks to how uh, through this individualization, um, you know, we can think about sort of the management of populations. If we think about, you know, Foucault and, mm -hmm. you know, bio, biopolitics, things like that. 
but to sort of bring it back maybe in a way that's a little bit more digestible, uh, psychologization is just a way of speaking about how social slash, or I'm here talking about particularly political issues mm. are, are sort of rendered onto the individual. Um, and I think what's really important about when I'm, when I'm talking about psychologization, um, I, I'm, I'm ascribing it really to, to modernity itself. I'm saying that societies themselves are highly psychologized. Um, mm. And prevent is not doing, when prevent is trying to, pre, you know, prevent violence, you know, and it's, it's focusing on the individual processes of vulnerability, you know, kinship, friends, you know, it's just sort of focusing and revolving around individuals and using these highly psychologizing, like we call it psychology talk, right? Mm. Oh, you're sad. Uh, if you're, if you're, if you're so sad or if you're angry, you know, you're more susceptible to like that ideological virus. Um. So prevent is not doing that. Prevent is simply, uh, in a way it's speaking to that it's speaking to to a discourse which already exists whereby we, you know we all already psychologize issues almost um you know automatically so to speak mm-hmm. um and so prevent it prevent is speaking to that and so that's 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 i think one of the ways that prevent is able to make that responsibility um, for for the public staff to make it palpable is through psychologization because it's rendered first of all it's rendered benevolent right besides process psychologization mm-hmm. or someone might be vulnerable so there's this mm-hmm. element of benevolence right like everybody everybody's a good guy you know and or a, or, or a good girl right everybody's good essentially and um, you know as long as we're all sort of looking out for each other then you know that that that's sort of what we should be doing um but it also it also then reproduces uh this idea of of threat of terrorism as almost like this virus is sort of being passed around um and in doing so it really sort of depoliticizes the very issues of violence it takes away from the you know what what potentially political violence might really be about because it just renders it as an issue of, of individual vulnerability that we have to we have to protect ourselves from, you know, by developing our resilience to viruses, etc. Mm. Okay, would you say then, that, uh, and obviously this is a question to both of you again, would you say that then this uh, speaks to um, the tendency, shall we say, amongst those who support prevent to? Uh, kind of dismiss grievance culture, as they call it, where mm. it's kind of, you know, there is nothing, it's nothing to do with all of that that's going on over there. It's just simply, as Darika said, this virus that we just need to stamp out. Could either of you speak on that? Um, I, I can leave yeah, in if, it's, it. if it's all right. Um, when, when the policy was made um, a legally incumbent duty, there's actually large swathes of the policy that um, specifically deal with grievance in inverted commas because um, the way that the policy is written, it sort of dismisses genuine grievance. It speaks about uh, previous issues with the policy in terms of how people felt the Muslim community was being targeted. And it, it, it sort of, it's very dismissive of these. Um, and there's various sections that talk about perceived 
racial uh, grievances, prejudices, and so on, perceived religious prejudices, as in um, sort of this is before the definition of Islamophobia was kind of underway, but it's basically saying that um, Muslims that feel targeted by Prevent as a result of being Muslims, their grievances aren't real. And it's very dismissive in that sense. Um, and -hmm. I think when, when you have that quite literally written into the policy, um, you know, the people, the people that are very supportive of prevent, the people that are supposed to then carry out this duty, it doesn't really, um, set very good ground to do anything but dismiss grievances with the policy Mm -hmm. itself. And it's all, it's all gets, gets brought back down to this business of, well, how much do you feel your security is worth? How, you know, what kind of risk do you want to be at? And again, I think, I think talking about prevent as a virus in this way is a very, uh, contemporary, a very fitting kind of, um, way of speaking about it right now. It goes back to this idea of we're just keeping you safe. So if you have a grievance with it, um, you know, and it all comes down to how much risk do you want to be at? Mm. Mm. Okay, interesting. I want to go back to, I think that was a bit of a, my own kind of a offshoot, as it were. Um, but I want to kind of go back to, Claudia, what you were talking about, about the panopticon pre-crime and fear. And I kind of mm-hmm. want to link that together with what Derek was saying about the psychologization. Ah, I got it right. Okay. Of uh, the political and war on terror. Um, so I just want to ask both of you, is it the case then that the psycho, uh, psychologization of the war on terror, prevent, et cetera, et cetera, actually affects um, both sides of the equation, so to speak? So those whose duty it is to report and those who are reported, would that be something that would be, uh, a, well, good understanding so to speak as far as good goes Tariq, do you do you want to go i feel i've waffled for a bit <laughs> <laughs> i i mean just so i understand you mean in terms of the responsibility of staff to refer yeah uh, in as terms well of as like those who fear. are referred in terms of claude you uh, mentioned the fear of doing something and i want to link yeah. this to the um psychology that you were talking about as in you know that it's kind of become an individualized sort of thing. And I think that you mentioned uh, this duty becoming palpable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, when something becomes palpable, I kind of take from that, that there's a sort of fear around it. And I want to kind of explore that connection between what you both said earlier on. Uh, How far does fear actually go in the psychological explanations of what's going on with prevent and war and terror? As well as respect yeah. prevent. So I, I think to this, I just want to mention one thing. Um, so I, I found that, at least in uh, in the article that uh, that I wrote, mm. the the process of psychologization also serves a purpose within um, hypothetical quote unquote post racial societies, mm. right? So, so societies mm. whereby issues of racism have technically uh, are are no longer sort of. Um, institutional or politically inscribed they're, they're things that happen they're bad apples or they occur on sort of the margins of society um so i to to me the, the process of psychologization of uh, one one way it makes it palpable uh to the masses um is because there's a recognition that the threat of terrorism is 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 racialized you know it's 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 hyper racialized mm. to muslims to muslim bodies to muslimness Muslim behaviors, um, 
and therefore, you know, and this is something that's sort of really well understood in research, you know, like people have, we, it's, it's sort of understood right now that when people go to prevent training, they're like, I, I think we're talking about Muslims here, but we're not really saying Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, and I think just to, in terms of making it palpable, um, you know, there's all these ways whereby, um, uh, you know, what's spoken about in terms of new racisms, you know, things are, 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 are rendered colorblind. Um, and therefore, you know, it's sort of, it, it, it takes away from that, the bluntness of how racist the strategy really is. Um, so I, I just sort of wanted to mention that on the side. Um, I, I think the, the, the element of psychologization, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I think ultimately it's probably the biggest investment. I mean, I'd like to hear Claudia's thoughts on this, um, especially uh, as she, she's an expert on prevent as well. Um, you know, what the future of prevent looks like. And in, in my readings of it, you know, what we're seeing right now are these creation of mental health hubs, mm. you know, across the UK, there's three of them, um, which are very unique. They're very, very unique, actually, you know, um, in the global north uh, and start really starting off here where there's, there, there are these hyper-securitized public spaces, really, you know, there is a perfect overlap between healthcare and, and, and security or counterterrorism, whereby certain individuals um, who are referred to prevent um, for whatever reason um, will be sort of, will go, you know, if they needed mental health support, you know, instead of going through regular public health services, they're going to go to the specialty counter-terrorist, um, you know, mental health, uh, you know, like services. Mm. Um, and I, it's, it's, it's a very interesting development. Even there, there's an element of colorblindness. Um, but it's particularly relevant to today because one of the highest rates of referrals and prevent, um, at, at least in the last statistics that was, uh, that were published was this mixed, unclear mm. ideology. Right, it's people who actually are not even exhibiting, hypothetically, you know, any any clear affiliations to any ideology, but they're being referred to these uh, counterterrorism mental health hubs, um, and you know, these are huge red flags that mm -hmm. we're seeing. But you know, this could only be rendered possible through through the sort of social or, you know, I mean, the communal investment that we have, I think, um, mm. in mental health being this benevolent process that, oh, we're just catching people, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe certain people, oh, that happens. I mean, one case, um, this, this is being published, but one case that, you know, I can maybe refer to right now was like someone who's walking around tourist sites. Um, and uh, according to the, to, the, to the police who've written, who've written this report, you know, he, he's acting uh, shady. You know, he's he's not acting shady. He He's acting strange, according to, like, you know, whoever's observing him. Um, and so he was sort of caught and referred to this to this counterterrorism mental health service. Um, and we can we can already assume there is like the 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 racism in this. Right. Mm -hmm. Like most clearly this person was probably <laughs> a racialized Muslim in some shape or form, right? Like whatever the appearance or behavior might've been. Um, and now they're seeking, uh, now they're getting, you know, mental health 
um, support through these services. So I, I, there, there's, I think I'll, I'm, I'm sort of addressing maybe, uh, I'm going beyond the frame that you just gave me, but I think I just wanted to maybe touch a little bit more broadly on what psychologization is that, actually leading. That's fine. That's fine. Um, I actually want to pick up on quite a few things from that, actually, and direct them to you both. Um, I think let's start with the thing that's being disciplined. Let's go back to the very first question. And I think one thing that you mentioned, uh, Tarek, um, is Muslimness. Okay. Now, I want to ask you both, um, because I, I know, Claudia, you've definitely looked at the prevent training, and Tarek, I'm assuming you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to know, is Muslimness the thing that's being disciplined here? And how is that Muslimness constructed as well? I think, I think particularly with the training, if, if we want to focus on that for a second, there's a great yeah. deal in terms of imagery. Um, I think the training has changed since I started looking at it. When I first started looking at prevent training around 2014, there was a very popular training module from the College of Policing. And, and, you know, when we're talking about the training, you know, it seems as if they're referring to Muslims without actually saying it. This was not that subtle. It, 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 it would be doing it a disservice to suggest there was subtlety here. We're talking about the stereotypes of refugees or immigrants trying to achieve um, citizenship. We're talking about young Muslim male schoolboys. We're talking about young Muslim women in veils. Um, and it was interesting to, to see, you know, the associations. So beards, veils, eating halal, um, outward religiosity, etc. And it, it was sort of the way the narrative in the training was this kind of um, perceived backwardness that backwardsness that needed correcting. It's that that um, mm. Tariq mentioned the ideal citizen, the good Muslim versus the bad Muslim. Um, these symbols that are seen as a refusal to blend in and homogenize into British culture. Um, you know, Fanon spoke about this, this requirement to emulate the, the white man to fit into this concept of the ideal citizen to become palatable. Mm. And these differences become perceived as dangerous. But what was interesting yeah. within the training particularly is the few white examples, for want of a better phrase, they, they had um, somebody who was previously in the army. Um, they had someone who was in combat 18. Um, when they when they were depicting... Um, the majority examples involving Muslim individuals, there was these kind of vague aspects to it. They weren't, they weren't giving a very full picture, which you'd think for an individual case study, the whole reason why you use it is so that you can, you can delve into these specific aspects. Um, and they, they always had reasons put down for it that stemmed back to issues with religion. But when, when they're dealing with the examples involving white individuals, not only was there a great deal more detail, but it always came back to, um, their neighbours thought they were lovely, they had poor mental health, lack of state support, etc. And it was interesting to see how the training very much emulated media rhetoric, um, especially in the wake of particular attacks when we see the differences in language and portrayal, um, how Muslimness mm. is constructed in the media as this very threatening force. Whereas when we've seen um, neo-Nazi far-right individuals, it can be blamed on their mental health. The recent example with the Metropolitan Police officer, they, they've inferred mm. that basically his autism is, is the reason for having joined a neo-Nazi organization. If we, 
If we look at examples involving Muslims by comparison, it's dangerous religion, monstrous threats, um, savagery, etc. Even the language with which we talk about Muslimness is is different. Um, sorry, I've I've gone on a bit there. I don't I don't know if that fit into what you meant, but uh, no, it's fine. It's perfect. The, the, um, I don't I don't know about a chicken and egg, but the training is very reflective of the the media rhetoric around Muslimness, and it's they they complement each other somewhat. Okay, interesting. Uh, Derek, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, I mean that's 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 definitely it. I mean, I I would the only thing I guess I would add slightly is that I think there's an element of ideal citizen citizenry that that sort of goes beyond Muslimness, right? Mm. Like, I mean, I think the war on the war on terror has sort of evolved. I think in general to almost uh, capture. You know what Mark Sageman calls like the protest class. Mm. You know, like it's like literally anyone who potentially, you know, might be a threat to society, hypothetically speaking, right? But we know that the very notion of threat itself is racialized. Like that's the point. Um, but you know, the industry that the industries that have developed and all the think tanks. You know, there's so much that's developed through the war on terror um, to really you know, um, just expand towards everything. And I think a good example of this is how prevent training, um, it, it sort of, it, it took a sidestep at one point to also include uh, the war on knives here in mm-hmm. the UK, mm-hmm. right? And so teachers were also being trained to uh, essentially exactly through the same process to sort of identify and report individual uh, youth that they suspect might be um, prone to like knife violence in the future, um, and and I, I think it also speaks here to sort of there's a there's a public health element to why to how this is expanding and the logic of it, but but yeah no um, ultimately I think what what I find is really interesting especially to what Claudia is saying, given that it, it's it's so reflective of like public discourse exactly the, the way the way she explained it, um, you know there's always like there's almost like this push and pull. I don't know if Claudia would agree with this. Mm. There's like, sometimes there's like this push to like try to expand the war on terror or counterterrorism or counter extremism to like all forms of threat, mm. right? Even misogyny, like everything. Mm. Um, but then there's this pull. And sometimes I, I see this, like if you look at some of the reports from Henry Jackson society or any of the other sort of neocon think tanks, right? There's like this pullback where they're like, wait a second, <laughs> you know, this is really about Muslims. <laughs> Right. Like mm. stop, stop trying to expand, you know, counter extremism to like all these things. Um, and it's it's sort of this ridiculous sort of back and forth, which is which is occurring. And I, I, I feel like we're in a state a stage right now of pull. Actually, we're seeing a pull, I think, a drawback, like in a way that that I think they're, they're trying to maybe almost double down on the significance of Islam and Muslimness. Mm. In, um, in counterterrorism, but I don't know. Maybe I don't know what Claudia. What, what do you think about that? I would. I would definitely agree with regards to the whole the the idea of a push and pull. I think that's a that's a really good, really good way of explaining it. And I think um, obviously Tarek mentioned the the figures earlier, and whilst we're talking about color blindness and so on, um, quite a lot of the um, individuals, collectives, um, when they when they talk about defending prevent, they refer to the fact. Um, Oh, but look, the, the figures have altered. We refer a lot of people from the far right too. 
um, without actually acknowledging the colossal damage that, that Prevent has done since its inception to, to Muslim communities. But um, when, when we look at the, the figures, so from 2015 to 2018, we're looking at a percentage of referrals of mostly Muslims between um, 65% to 44% um, versus much lower mm -hmm. figures for the far right. It's only uh, from, from sort of 2019 to 2020, we see the figures equalize at 24% and then the far right overtakes at 43% to 30%. Um, uh, Islamist extremist, extremist referrals. Um, and I think wh when we look at the figures, again, it doesn't acknowledge the damage previously done. Um, mm. But it also, um, this idea that, oh, well, this is a demonstration of it working. No, this is a demonstration of, one, a problem that's been ignored for some time, but also um, it shows how many years. We can also look at the number of referrals that were subsequently rejected, which, again, is the overwhelming majority from 2015 to um, 2018, the percentages, it's around, I think, 19% was the most that made it through to the channel panel for referral. So if you think about the huge numbers of referrals that are dropped, again, we're looking at a wake of trauma levied, levied at people. But again, you have these particularly neocon think tanks, some of which have already been mentioned, I'm sure, um, some of which we can readily imagine um, who are in support of Prevent who say that, again, you know, well, this is the overwhelming problem. This is the threat. Um, what, what's the latest one? Islamofascism is, is this great mm. overwhelming threat that we all need to be protected against. Um, and I think, obviously, we've had the, the recent race report, the, the Sewell report, that um, I think it's been put best by a lot of um, scholars and individuals of colour saying that they feel gaslit. It, it's classic gaslighting. Mm. When we, when we compare that to the recent um, independence, in inverted commas, review of uh, the prevent policy, Shawcross is, is reviewing it. Um, mm. If that's not a continuation of that kind of gaslighting, when he's previously made statements that I, I, I will not be repeating because they're horrifying, but also he was heading up the um, Henry Jackson Society, which, mm -hmm. again, has been at the forefront of saying this is, this is a Muslim problem. You know, this mm -hmm. this is this is what we need to be focusing on. These are the people that are a threat. Um, yeah. So I think that despite the uh, the defenders of prevent, the vanguard of prevent, if you will, saying that you know the, the policy has been revolutionised. I mean, I had a police officer recently tell me on Twitter that oh well, that was out of the 2011 policy document, so it's not as bad anymore. And I was like, oh right, so the years that that was in place, we just forget about that, do we? Um, mm -hmm. pe people. Um, by and large, the people that are determined to say that this 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 policy is not dangerous are people that will not be affected by it. I, th I think yeah. is the, is the simplest way I can put it. They are not going to be subject to the remonstrations of the prevent policy, so it does not bother them in the same way. They see it as this is um, how we keep the nation secure. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Derek, you want to add to that? You are you. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say one thing, you know, um, to, to the very last sentence that Claudia said, because I get that very often on Time about Prevent, you know, like, you know, Claudia just made a statement about that other communities are not affected by it. And then people either um, who are uh, partial to Prevent or working with Prevent, you know, they'll say, well, we're actually really working hard towards the far right, mm -hmm. you know. But I, I think really to, to emphasize Claudia's point, 
you know, um, it, it's not it's not that, you know, a, a policy or a strategy doesn't become not racist because white people are captured in. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's something that people s- somehow can't understand. Uh, you know, a policy can very well be racist, even though white people are also caught in it. Mm. It's just that their their whiteness, you know, the fact that they're white, they're privileged, their bodies are privileged mm. in and of themselves to not be associated with threat, right? Like, this is what makes it a racist policy. They would have had to exhibit some sort of behavior um, that very explicitly, you know, associates them with a far-right organization, right? Like just a regular a regular white guy who might be exhibiting mental health issues walking around a tourist site might not might not sort of draw on that representation of threat, mm-hmm. right? Most likely it won't. Um, whereas a Muslim, as we know, Muslims who are um, either depressed, angry, um, Muslims who we know also are going through uh, potentially psychotic episodes, you know, like th- just the fact that they're Muslim, mm-hmm. you know, that they that's how they get referred. So I just wanted to maybe just expand that last point of, of Claudia, because I think that's 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 really, really important for people to understand. Mm. Mm. OK, good. Good. Um, yeah, I think I also want to bring in um, Tariq, you mentioned uh, in an article last year, the concept of performative colorblindness. And I think we've talked about uh colorblindness quite a bit um already uh so i just want to kind of ask you to kind of explain what you mean by performative colorblindness yeah so i i mean i think colorblindness is always performative i just thought Mm -hmm. i would put that word there it might it might come off as redundant but i just wanted to put it there just so um there's an element of there's a temporal element Mm -hmm. there like there's an element of time that's involved because uh, I mean, uh, I don't know um, if uh, Claudia can corroborate this in you know in her prevent trainings, but you know in the prevent trainings that I had to go through in my research, there was almost this repetitive insistence when it comes to like Muslims that like you know um, and we see this also in, in the training slides. So I can you can also demonstrate it actually sort of black on white on in the training slides themselves. Mm. But you know especially in the rhetoric, you know. Um, it would be like, is, is is someone being radicalized when they put on their headscarf? Mm-hmm. No, it's not the headscarf. You know, is someone being radicalized when they grow a beard? No, it's not that. You know, so there's this element of always raising this racial signifier mm-hmm. and then erasing it, right? So they're constantly raising and erasing the racial signifiers, which associates terrorism, which associates threat with Muslims. And the reason why they're doing that, obviously, as we know, um, what the, the, the you know one of the the elements of colorblindness is to sort of, you know, wash your own hands from the responsibility mm. of, 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 you know, of spreading a racist policy. So they're saying like, look, we're not telling people to go out for people who, who grow their beards. By the way, when I used to consult for uh, the police a long, long time ago in Montreal um, and sort of counter-radicalization became a bigger thing then, um, they we there was a training that was being provided and they explicitly said that Muslims who are growing beards um might be vulnerable to radicalization. So I, I think there there is that that rhetoric I find there's there's always this point between what's happening behind the scenes and what's happening because that wasn't that wasn't a public presentation. Mm-hmm. Um 
Well, I think long story short, I think there's this element of sort of they, I think the government and anyone working in prevent, they recognize that threat and terrorism is actually, you know, sort of associated with Muslimness in in the public imaginary, in the mm. public consciousness. They know that, right? Mm. And so that's why it's, there's like this performative colorblindness whereby it's like, don't go after Muslims. You know, like don't, don't, you know, when you see a Muslim, it's not, it's not because they're Muslim. And that's why you have these training slides where it's like, what could be a risk factor to someone being radicalized? Mm. You know, you know, they're sad. They're not, you know, they're recoiling towards themselves. They're visiting a mosque mm-hmm. or, you know, they're outside all the time. Mm. And then the whole point is to like not checkbox the mosque, right? But it's so stupid. It's, it's, it's actually really, really stupid on so many different fronts because in doing so, they're acknowledging the, so the racialized association between terrorism and Muslims. Um, but moreover, actually, they actually are completely, um, and I, I, I don't mean to harp on this for too long, but I really, really want to emphasize this point. They're actually completely discarding the very uh, element of accountability in this. Mm-hmm. If you think about it. Now, if someone were to click on that, imagine someone were to go through this training and they actually believe that, you know, Muslimness is associated with threat. So they're going to click on that that checkbox that about a kid going uh, to the mosque, which isn't far from the truth because we know one third of conservative voters here in the UK don't want don't want a mosque built in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so they click on that, and they go to the next slide that just tells them, "Oh no, you're wrong. You know, being Muslim or exhibiting Muslim behavior is not uh, uh, is not a signifier." And then they're supposed to go back to the previous slide. And, you know, uncheck that and then finish the training and then they get their prevent certificate. Wow. Now we have, we have, we have to ask ourselves, is this actually anti-racist training, mm-hmm. right? Like, is that, is, does that count constitute anti-racist training? If someone were really truly to believe that, you know, like it, it just shows how little the grievability of Muslims really matters, mm-hmm. right? That there is a potentially could have been racist. I mean, in a different, let's say in a, uh, I mean, all of pre- prevent training is terrible. But let's say in a slightly more ideal scenario, you know, someone who actually checks checkboxes that maybe raises a flag somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, in some kind of security system. But that doesn't happen. Um, you know, it, it's it's a complete, um, you know, the whole thing is almost like a charade mm-hmm. um, of like just going through, you know, the sort of neoliberal process of like hyper managerialized training you know you just keep mm-hmm. going through these trainings and just keep getting certificates and that prevent fits into that mm. wow i would i would Rocket. agree with i would yeah. agree with Tarek. i mean I, I for the purposes of um the phd research i undertook the training that was delivered by the college of policing um and it takes 13 minutes to complete and you can answer every question wrong and you will still get a certificate at the end and i know this because i went and did it <laughs> 13 minutes 13 minutes to give you the capacity let's say as a teacher to observe somebody's behavior or someone's statements to refer them to uh, a policy that if it's taken to its furthest logical conclusion can see social services becoming involved if a child is young but it can see you being excluded from university potentially subject to more remonstrations um but i just i wanted to um Another aspect of this, when we're talking about Muslimness, um, and we, if we look at the recent definition of Islamophobia provided by the all-party parliamentary group um, that Professor Saeed, um, Dr. Abdul Karim also 
contributed to. Um, defining um, Islamophobia as a form of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness. And this is because anything defined as racism can then be governed by the Race Relations Act and people are therefore protected. Um, mm. Now, this, this definition has been accepted by many groups, many political parties, not, not the Conservatives, shock horror. Um, mm. And the rejection of this definition has been chosen on the grounds of free speech, that targeting expressions of Muslimness impinges on that right. And that's a discussion we're currently seeing raging on in Batley. But further to this, the National Police Chiefs Council also refused the definition with their director, Martin Hewitt, stating it could cause confusion and hamper investigations into terrorism. Now, the fact that terrorism was brought into discussions on defining Islamophobia speaks volumes about how Muslims and Muslimness is identified as a threat in the UK. Mm. So in terms of yeah. you cannot even speak about anti-Muslim prejudice, anti-Muslim racism, without bringing up the risk of impinging on terrorism investigations. What does that, what does that say about the status of Muslims and how they're perceived in these discussions? Mm. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of go back to something which you both kind of mentioned. Um, as just like the last kind of question I want to ask you. Um, and it's basically something that uh, Derek has brought to the fore recently. Uh, we learned that the British government has exported uh, Prevent mm. uh, to China to show its effectiveness on the Uyghur uh, population there. And we're all aware of what's going on. Uh, we've all seen the story, uh, news stories and what have you. Um, but I want to ask, and I think, um, was it Derek or Claudia? I think both of you kind of mentioned uh, the expansion <clears throat> of Prevent to the protest class here. Mm. Um, but what implications do you think, uh, do you both think the exporting, exporting of Prevent overseas, um, you can spot, t uh, speak specifically about China, but generally overseas, uh, what implications do you think this in, uh, exportation has. Tarek, I'm happy for you to lead on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, so I think there's, there's, there's probably a lot to say, uh, but a lot of it can really be simplified to the fact that we know that Islamophobia is global and mm. we know that the war on terror is global. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's really important, um, especially for overseas listeners or anyone who's listening from a different country. You know, I think it's easy to look at Prevent and say, oh, this is just happening in the UK. And I've had conversations with people who are engaging, let's say, in CVE in a different country. And there's this idea of the sort of national exceptionalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my country doesn't do that. Um uh, which even among Muslims, I'm hearing that. So even, you know, they they feel that there might not, they, they might completely disagree with prevent, but they feel like there's nothing really to learn about prevent that's really useful for their context. Um, so, you know, I guess when I found that, it's interesting because I was looking through um, surveillance technologies, actually border surveillance, which we know is a highly racist uh, enterprise and uh, you know that's how I happened uh, to, um, to to fall upon the, the that article which sort of referenced Rusi so mm -hmm. it was Rusi that was providing that training um, using UK aid so it was it was you know it was British taxpayer money that was paying for Rusi to go um, and uh, promote 
you know, British counter-violent extremism practices in uh, among Uyghurs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we know that security is, is one of the largest growing exports uh, in the UK. And it's just sort of one of the largest, fastest growing industries, I think, in the world. Um, and I think there, you know, it's really important for me to say, and I'll just say, sort of say this in a nutshell, um, that I think some of the mistakes we might do in talking about prevent is sort of seeing prevent as its own thing rather than one, seeing it as one part or one manifestation of a global mm. strategy, right? And also um, not, you know, having to look through prevent and seeing how it's part of all these other sort of growing, you know, surveillance societies or surveillance technology, surveillance industries, right? That are sort of growing and expanding all over. Mm. Um, and, you know, so a lot a lot of sort of discourse when people ask me, you know, do you want to just end prevent? You know, prevent is really just a symptom of all of these things happening. You know, even if we were to just sort of stop prevent tomorrow, mm. you know, that would probably do a lot of good. But mm. <laughs> you still have all these industries mm. that are, you know, flourishing and expanding um in terms of you know racist border practices like for example just to say in, in, in you know in the uk you can't really end prevent but keep the hostile mm. environment right like those two those two operate upon very similar logics of you know sort of othering and racialized threats um and you know wherever we want to draw the, the common ideology be it nationalism whatever underneath it um so that's all i really I guess I can add to this. Um, I'm not sure what Claudia, if you have anything to say. No, I think I agree with Tariq wholeheartedly. I think it's um, it's important to acknowledge that the Islamophobia industry, like the war on terror, is a global phenomenon. We've seen um, um, we've seen the events in India, Kashmir, China, Burma, Palestine, large yeah. swathes of Europe, with um, you know recent legislations being brought in um, in France as well, um, being. Uh, lead, leading the vanguard against Muslimness at the minute. Um, I think I think there's something quite um, terrifying about the exportation of Prevent's China when we've seen the concentration camps. We know about the forced sterilizations. Um, you know, when we consider um, it, it's it's something that I've sort of been, been speaking on for a bit regarding um, Holocaust remembrance. The the phrase that we always use is never again. Never again, never again. Well, it's happening right now. So, you know, it, it's um, yeah. the, the discussions about prevent in China, I think, are, are horrifying. Um, I, think, I think you can make the argument um, that prevent echoes former policies of management and control um, during the colonial era. And you can observe how mm. other countries could take a policy like that and drive it hard in the direction that takes it to its, its final point, which... Um, you know, you, you can look at how that can turn to ethnic cleansing and genocide and so on. You're, you're marginalizing a population, pushing it to the boundaries. And if, if we want to look for a minute just at the effectiveness of PREVENT, because um, as, as Tarek mentioned, one of the things that we get thrown at us a lot by the, the vanguard of PREVENT is, well, do you just want to scrap it then? What will you put in its place? Well, apart from the fact that there are policies for safeguarding, particularly around things like organized crime and so on, among younger children especially, apart from the fact we have policies of a similar nature already in place and have had for years, um, you know, the, the, the transnational institution brought out a report in 2019 
um, finding that there was no empirical evidence to demonstrate that prevent had prevented a single act of terrorism. But we can demonstrate mm-hmm. that the prevent policy itself has had a tremendously detrimental effect on people who become victims of it. Furthermore, it has become a radicalizing factor and therefore is counterproductive. Statements written into the policy are problematic. They indemnify the government, security apparatus, the police. Um, and, um, you know, despite the, the recent report that I mentioned in regards to its gaslighting, we know institutional racism exists. Um, and the prevent policy essentially condemns the victims and denies their experiences. So I think, um, you know, the exportation of prevent uh, in, in conjunction with the sort of global Islamophobia industry it's become just one more chain on 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 this um, th- this unfortunate situation. And like and like Tariq says, um, while scrapping prevent, I think would be tremendous. I think it would be a huge step in the right direction, and I think it would go somewhere towards um, uh, somewhere towards healing, perhaps somewhere towards um, rectifying the damage. It's one symptom of a much larger problem. Sorry to go back to sort of the virus analogies, but it mm-hmm. is. It's one symptom of a colossal problem that. Unless there is, um, you know, some actual impetus towards real change, it's it's not going to solve solve the issues. Mm. Well, some sobering thoughts there to finish us off. But thank you very much, uh, Claudia and Derek. It's been an interesting uh, conversation, and hopefully, um, we can have you both on again uh, soon enough to discuss. Um, other issues related to maybe prevent once the independent, as uh, Claudia so aptly put it in uh, in quotation marks, once the independent review comes out, we'll we'll probably have a chat then as well. <laughs> Look forward to it. <laughs> uh, but yeah. thank you very much both, and thank you very much, listeners, for listening in season four. Inshallah, season five will begin sometimes after Eid. Um, so keep your ears out for that. Okay then, salam. Salam. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.